How do we make sure that we utilise the things we've already bought a lot better? They don't have to be the smartest person or the most connected person, but they could actually create you know, something quite successful. Welcome to the second renaissance, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sormanilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father, and your host for the second renaissance. Today I sit down with Creel Price to unpack how entrepreneurship can solve the climate crisis. Creel is the co-founder of Investable and The Greenhouse, and according to Sir Richard Branson, Creel is the living, breathing definition of an entrepreneur. From scaling some of the highest mountains in the world to working with Richard Branson on the future of philanthropy and exiting his own business for over $100 million, Creel Price certainly is the high-octane adventurer at the forefront of a movement he has fittingly dubbed the Entrepreneurance. A passionate believer that in today's world, for profit and for purpose should be the same thing, Creel has worked with socialpreneurs from all corners of the globe, including micro-enterprise initiatives in the Papua New Guinea highlands, tomato farming cooperatives in Zimbabwe, and long-term offenders in the Melbourne prison system. At the United Nations Global Accelerator in New York, Creel joined international thought leaders to develop a framework for the entrepreneurial ecosystem to address the UN Sustainable Development Goals. It gives me great joy to welcome my friend and mentor to the second renaissance. Welcome, Creel Price. Pleasure to be here. Now... I can't help but ask, given we've known each other for a long time and um, you're very much associated with the term entrepreneurance and uh, we're on the show, the second renaissance here. Seems like our worlds are kind of colliding. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your vision of the entrepreneurance and why entrepreneurship is linked to the first renaissance. Yeah, I guess it, it tracks its its time back to probably 2005. I started talking a bit about a revolution that we needed for the world to, to be, be a better place. And that was all about, you know, getting rid of all of the, the stuff that everyone holds dear. And, and that didn't quite re resonate. Whereas the, the term uh, renaissance was, was all about how do we revive, you know, things that used to work in the past um, around learning and culture. So I thought that sort of resonated. But it was always my belief that, you know, entrepreneurs are going to be the the future people that are, are going to make, make the big difference. So for me, it was trying to create a, a 21st century renaissance inspired by entrepreneurial thinking. Yeah, so without putting you on or your history skills here necessarily on, on the line, tell us a little bit because I've, I've read that you sort of refer back to, to Florence and the, you know, the meeting of, I guess, capital with, with creativity and it's a topic that's close to my heart as well. How have you seen this entrepreneurance playing out? Are you seeing some, some early evidence that we're you know, recreating a, a second Florence here in Sydney or elsewhere in the world at the moment? Well, it's nearly become a cliche these days, um, but let me tell you, 2005, I was getting a lot of blank looks about why we would need more entrepreneurs. And, and you know, there was three aspects to it, more entrepreneurs, more entrepreneurs successful at business and more entrepreneurs, um, you know, with social values that they were, you know, not just trying to make money or, or um, you know, make sales was, was they had a bigger purpose. Um, so... You know, it didn't really resonate in a huge way back in uh, 2005 with organisations and, 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 and the majority of the population. But, you know, fast forward, what's that, 17 years nearly. Um, and, you know, every university is focused on entrepreneurship. Every large organisation is trying to, you know, harness both entrepreneurs and how they partner with, with, with smaller businesses. Governments are talking about it all the time. They usually get it wrong. Even charities have moved their model um, to try and be more entrepreneurial rather than just the hand out sort of mentality i think the last statistic is, is something like one in three u.s graduates these days believe they're going to have their own business within the next five years so it's just like you know in my day when i started my business in 
what was that, 96, was my, my first real business, other than being a kid sort of business, is, you know, I, I was an outlier. Maybe best best would be 1% aspired to be an entrepreneur. Quite a few were maybe opportunity entrepreneurs because they'd lost their job and they sort of had to go out on their own, but it wasn't certainly a um, esteemed profession. So what what's changed in those, you know, 17 years since 2005? Why, why is entrepreneurship so... On, you know, in vogue at the moment is it is it is it this ability of entrepreneurs to do more with less, or you know, why why is this why has its moment come in the last few years? Yeah, well, I think I mean everything goes through various cycles. You know, if we look at just at the um, at the technology cycle at the moment, it's quite frothy and interesting. But you know, I, I worked through the dot com era, and you know, it was very very similar back in those days. So with entrepreneurship, I think the same is, is certainly true. Is people look at case studies. You know, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks are now uh, folk heroes uh, for some, folk enemies to others. Um, but all of that press creates you know the idea in someone that maybe they don't have to be the smartest person or the most connected person but they could actually create you know something quite successful um, and um, you know it's better than working for the you know the large organization climbing the corporate ladder that sort of slow and steady and they've seen maybe some of their peers and some of their friends that are working 70 80 hours a week and they think well if I had my own business I could you know maybe design my own future. Uh, you, you talked a little bit earlier about purpose, and I know both purpose and profit are, are, are close to your heart. And you know, previously, or maybe in previous generations, people would have thought you know that the only purpose for for business was to to turn a profit, sort of Milton Friedman style, right? But uh, purpose seems to be again trending. Uh, do we all feel more liberated today in today's society to maybe not hide the fact that we have a purpose beyond just the profit? What's what's your sense? Has it become culturally okay to discuss these types of terms and these types of values? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's always, you know, the Maslow hierarchy of needs, isn't it? As, as people go towards that self-actualization side, you know, when their other needs are, are really met, they, they need to turn turn the, the mirror back on themselves and, and you know, what, what, why are they here? Um, and I think there's, there's been a lot of soul searching even pre-COVID, but certainly COVID, I think, is, has really, um, you know, fast-tracked people's understanding of, you know, maybe we do want to do better um, than we've done in the past, just trying to make someone else rich. How, how can we, you know, make a difference? You know, climate is a big thing, but there's plenty of other fields that people really want to make a difference in. And, you know, entrepreneurship can be a great way to do that. Now, I mean, maybe I was reading between the lines here a little bit, but you don't sound like you're uh, maybe a huge fan of, of government getting it right. Is you know, is entrepreneurship the way for us to solve some of the, you know, biggest, the hairiest challenges of, of the 21st century? And if so, um, what role does both business and government potentially play in, in solving some of those issues? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, entrepreneurship, first of all, has to solve the future of work issue. You know, as we get more efficient in some of the industries we already have, we have to invent new industries. Um, and that's why, you know, back to the government side of things, it's really frustrating thinking about how, you know, we were real leaders in, uh, in solar technology in Australia, but, you know, we're, we're falling fast behind. That could have been, you know, employed so much more, more um, employees than the coal industry ever did if we had have got that um, right, like Finland did around wind. You know, it's, it's, I think it employs 30% of the, or it's 30% of the GDP of Finland now because they invested early in wind technology. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's definitely opportunities. And then there's the issue of solving, you know, the future um, of, of living is how do we make sure that these new inventions are going to get commercialised and make a difference? But equally, how do we make sure that they're not going to be, um, you know, t- you know, you know, do a worse job than, than what we had before. And I think I think there's, there's governments have definitely got a role to play in creating the right regulatory framework to make sure that we're harnessing entrepreneurship, we're, we're harnessing the right sort of industries. Um, and it's not just the industries of old. I remember, you know, four or five years ago, everyone was talking about every kid needs to code. But, you know, I was saying at the time, and, and I think it's, it's about to become reality, is in, in the future... We won't need as many coders because computers are going to do a lot of the coding. So you don't want to come in with the with the current mindset. You've got to be looking ahead, and that's what governments should be good at and saying, okay, in ten years' time, where are the jobs of the future going to be? How do we start to invest in our youth and and our university graduates and you know help foster that environment that we're we're going to be positioned well for the future, not for what we think the future is today. 
So, I mean, as a futurist, this all, all sounds, you know, very good to my ears. You know, there, there's always going to be skeptics out there, though, that kind of go, hey, I understand the job I'm currently doing, maybe in a, in a coal mine, uh, you know, maybe in an incumbent industry that's, you know, mining in you know, central Queensland or northern Queensland, for example. You know, if they're hearing about, you know, the jobs of the future and, you know, as Malcolm Turnbull talked about it, you know, the innovation nat- nation and that we need to invent these jobs of the future. Why do you think people are such skeptics? And, you know, what, what's what's needed, what's required to really give a push for people to kind of go, hey, my skills in, in coal mining might be transferable to, say, you know, green hydrogen, for example? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it is a hard one to sell, to be honest, because it is, you know, the fear, even, you know, AI is one of those things. There's so many opportunities that AI could do some amazing things, but equally on the, on the, on the other side is, you know, it c- can get out of control if we're not careful or take people's jobs and people don't want their jobs to be taken. So, but, you know, it's my belief if these are done responsibly, they're going to create more jobs than less. Um, but I think we just need the right people to be able to, to sell it. Um, and, and in the past, maybe that hasn't been been done in the, in the right sort of way. And it takes, you know, you don't need to go from zero to hero. I think it's incremental steps. Um, and Australia's got a long way to go in that regard because we've underinvested in R&D. We've underinvested in technology uh, for, for decades. So I'm, I'm, I'm just curious with regards to you know, social enterprise, you know, effective altruism, you know, even 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 non-for-profits moving more into a space of, you know, effectively uh, alleviating, you know, suffering, poverty, et cetera, around the world by taking an entrepreneurial approach. I mean, I, I recall back in 2009, 2010, in fact, you and I were, were starting to pen a book around, I think, the notion of buy-in, which was all about social enterprise. How are you seeing more sort of cross fertilization between government, non for profits, enterprise in solving some of these hairy issues? And um, you know, what what role can you and I play in, in advocating for a more entrepreneurial approach across industries? Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's where I got it wrong with the pre entrepreneurs was was a revolution, and and cor- for me, corporates were the enemy. I'd, I, in fact, I, I started writing that book, the corporation, before I actually found it on the bookshelves, and someone had already written it. It was just an amazing book to talk about, you know, how corporations, you know, were really set up to um, to 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 do do harm, if if we're not careful. And I, I was very much, you know, corporations the enemy, entrepreneurship is, is the only answer. But the reality is it's, it's a combination of the two. And what's really great, fast forward from those days to, to today, is the large organisations recognise they can't do it all themselves. They've got to partner with the, you know, the newer technologies who can actually take something to market so much quicker. Um, and it's not just about buying these companies, it's, all, it's working out, OK, how, how do we reinvent the way that commerce is done in the past between the various you know parties, the large organisations that have got the brand and the and the customers um, and the systems and some amazing amazing individuals, and the entrepreneurs that have got the fast moving you know potentially technologies um, that can actually you know change change the future. So I, I'm seeing that in a big way around climate change, um, which I'm really focused on the last two years. We've only just launched our climate fund, but it's been in action for for quite a while, and. For us to be successful, um, we need to engage with the large organisations. In Australia, they, they make up the majority of the emissions. So if we're just because we've got a, a new technology, we're not trying to actually replace the corporations. We're trying to get them to adopt uh, the forefront of technology in order to be able to, over time, change their emissions. And that, that you know, some of the, the biggest organisations in this country are, are really stepping up, which is really great. On that point, I mean, what, what what are some of the most, in your mind or in your heart, what are the most heartening stories of corporations transforming into more sustainable business models for the future? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly certainly greenwashing. I don't think anyone can um, can, can 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 say that doesn't exist. And, and you know, CEOs are under a lot of pressure from their boards and their and their stakeholders, including their employees and their customers. So. But, you know, a good example um, that, that I'm quite close to is Lendlease um, as, a, as a property company. They do a huge amount of construction. Construction's the biggest, the second biggest polluter in the country. So they've actually put together so a very aggressive um, 
net zero um, by 2025, but um, absolute net, net zero by 2035. And, and I think you know, from my understanding, certainly the, the only in Australia, but I, I think one of the few in the world that have actually set such an aggressive target. Um, and they're going to need a lot of technology and a lot of collaboration to make that happen. But at least, the, the, you know, as an organisation, they've really got behind that mission, which which is is going to you know take time, but will filter down through the ranks and file. And over time, their business models will have to change. Now, I mean, you mentioned lend lease, and um, I mean, the, the fascinating thing in your role too um, is that. You know, as as the as the head and one of the founders of Investable, and I'm going to get you to talk a little bit about this if you don't mind. Uh, you've also squarely invested into a, a new new hub uh, that I think you guys are launching at the beginning of 2022 called the Greenhouse uh, in Sydney as a as a hub for entrepreneurs, and I'm assuming a lot of people in in, in climate tech. What, what and I think that is a collaboration, if I'm not mistaken, with Salesforce and and Lendlease. Is that correct or correct me I if I'm wrong? They're, they're certainly stakeholders. Lendlease owns the building and, and built the building, and they're you know it's it's, it's you know one of the the, the best credentialed um, as, as far as green technologies as, as it stands today, which is really great. Salesforce is the marquee tenant, and uh, Mark Benioff is you know a, a real supporter of social initiatives around the world, and you know he he's on the um, he's on the, the board of, of the B team globally, um, and I've, I've recently recently joined the, the, the B team board here in Australia. Um, so I think hopefully there will be some real collaborations with Salesforce because they're you know, an iconic tech company. Um, and then the city of Sydney are, are the ones that have really sponsored this initiative. So it's a 500 seat um, climate tech hub where we're focusing on probably not, you know, a lot of co-working focuses on startups, you know, one or two person businesses, whereas this is really the five to 25 person business that's ready to commercialise around the world and, and you know, really engage with organ- larger organisations because typically, you know, organisations have been quite active in the, in the startup space, but generally not a lot of stuff happens because these companies are just not uh, procurement ready. So our job is how do we get these companies to a stage where they can not only scale around the world, but they can actually take on these big challenges that, that large organisations have? Now, I mean, Investable is, is firmly in the sort of impact investing space. Uh, and um, you know, I'm fa- fascinated by the approach. I think you, you and uh, Trevor Folsom started this back in 2013, 2014. Uh, to see what have been some of your, you know, early successes, and and if there's anything in the pipeline that we we should all be should all be excited about. Yeah, I think you know there's huge amounts in the pipeline that you should be excited about, Anders. Um, but the um, you know we, we investable really started even before 2014 when we officially opened the doors. We, we'd been you know when you sell a, a fairly large business, um, people are approaching you all the time with these amazing ideas, and you can't help but invest in, in some of those. And we were very fortunate. Well, Trevor at least was 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 one of the very first investors in Canva as an example. That's now you know this amazing not only a, a 40 billion dollar valuation business, but the the, the founders have, have committed. 30% of their own shareholding to, uh, to the Canva Foundation. Um, the, the staff culture they've built is amazing. The product is just, you know, it's just, I can't, I can't say how much I think they're a model for the type of organisations that we need in the future. And the more Canvas we have, um, I think, you know, the, the future is looking very, very bright. But equally, you know, we don't, we don't have many more $40 billion companies in our portfolio, but there's still some very exciting things that are happening. I think we've invested in 97 companies uh, since 2010 now, um, which probably makes us one of the most active early stage uh, investors in the, in the country. But some, some exciting ones are, you know, Akin, we've been invested for, for quite a few years now. They're, they've created a, an, 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 really a, an emotional intelligence for robots to help NASA, um, you know, keep their astronauts, um, you know, sane as, as they're flying around space. Um, we've, we've invested in AEV, which is an um, electric vehicle, um, which focuses mainly on the slow-moving electric vehicle market, but it's, it's a real Australian technology that I think is hopefully going to, uh, to make a big difference. Um, another one on the impact side might be um, Air, Air Robe, um, is, is you know, something more commercial, but it's a, uh, it's a technology that as soon as you buy a garment at a um, you know, retail store, you can actually log the garment then and there so you can upcycle with a click of the button in the future. You know, after 12 months, you're not using that garment. Rather than having to take photos, um, you can actually upcycle. So, you know, the whole thing about climate change is not necessarily that we're not going to be spending, but how do we make sure that we utilise the things we've already bought a lot better? So within that 
context, I mean, you, you sort of alluded to, to one of your one of your exits, which I imagine is the Blueprint Management Group. I think you guys sold for about $109, $110 million back in the day, um, you know, in your mid-30s. Now, many people would have just, you know, bought a yacht and uh, cruised around the Mediterranean. Um, instead, you, you chose to start scaling mountains, which I know you've been doing for ages. And uh, But really, you doubled down on on the impact of, of business in, in a positive way. Uh, what, what was the eureka moment or has this always been part of your, your personality or did, was it, did you have a sort of a, a meaning revelation at that point in time? Well, in some ways, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So it's hard to sit by the pool in a resort for, uh, for more than a couple of days. So, you know, you've got to, got to keep busy. And, and even before we'd sold our business, I'd actually retired two years prior make, to make sure we didn't have an earnout or a, or a workout because I never wanted to work for someone else. So that sort of worked quite well. Um, but it was at that stage that I, I started to work on the entrepreneurs. Um, but the entrepreneurs could really trace its history back to some of the things that we did in Blueprint, which was, you know, really staff engagement um, things around. Sh- you know traditional charities, but we would we would uh, really you know not not it wasn't just about donating money. How could we get people's time into uh, solving these big problems? And I think you know I learned quite a lot around that, but equally around how positive as a culture builder it can be, um, rather than just paying people a wage at the end of the week and you know having these profit targets. How do you, how do you have some kind of of other mission, um, and that's um, that, you know I think we did that fairly successfully. And for me, it was it was it was doubling down on that and saying, okay, how do how do I look myself in the the uh, the, the the mirror when I'm 85 years old and saying, you know, what difference did I make on the planet? And for me, that difference was using my entrepreneurial ability, which I felt you know I, I was I had some really great skills in. How do I bring those skills to, to bear um, in, in solving the, you know, some of the world's biggest problems, particularly in the, in the social area? I've, you know, I've done quite a lot of work in the, in the third world as an example to say, how do we not only inspire entrepreneurship to get more businesses, but how do we um, you know, hopefully change um, some of the poverty cycle through that? Yeah. And so, I mean, as we think about that, that purpose, you know, profit, meaning, I guess, you know, various stages of life, you, you've now also become uh, a, uh, a farmer as well. I believe you're dialing in today um, from the central coast. Is this, uh, is this going back to, to your roots in, in regional New South Wales or has this been uh, a totally new passion that you've found? No, I think it's, it's always been there. I just never wanted to be a hobby farmer where you're mowing grass every weekend. So for me, it had to be a commercial farm. And, I, you know, quite a few years ago after selling the business, we, we looked to buy a, a massive cattle farm um, in the Northern Territory. But um, a, few, a, few, a few things conspired to prevent me from doing that, including, uh, you know, a conversation with Richard Branson, who was one of the very first people to, uh, to, to, to go no beef, um, that, you know, it, it, it was such a big emitter. Um, that we needed to actually change change the way um, that, we, that we ate. Um, so, but you know, I, th- I think um, now that we're doubling down on, on climate, um, one of the big uh, opportunities and probably the quickest win for the world is um, is how we do food and agriculture. So in our in our greenhouse, there's six sectors that we've based around the UN, um, you know, identified areas for reduction of emissions, and one of those is food and agriculture. So we're seeing all of these amazing technologies, and I just see a really positive, you know, changing of the guard from the old way of doing things that maybe my dad, the farmer, used to do to the new way of doing things, um, which is not only more um, more efficient and more profitable, um, but it's it's actually better for the land, uh, better for the consumer because you've got you know food tasting better. Um, and you know we cut out a lot of the middlemen. So you know, so in some ways, this lemon and vegetable farm that I'm I'm, I'm now finding myself uh, getting quite involved in, is is hopefully a model of you know how do we use regenerative agriculture but do it at commercial scale. So on that, I mean, not not only are you investing in you know re- regenerative capitalism through investable and 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 also the spaces you're facilitating via the the greenhouse, but talk us through a little bit about the notion of regenerative farming and and the sort of groundswell movement that that's uh, having at the moment. Yeah, I mean, there's there's much better people than me to talk about this subject, but you know, just briefly, I think there's just there's there's two things that are happening: is consumers are demanding like the organic movement was was hijacked, if you like, by large organisations. And you can put an organic sticker, um, but it's not, you know, it's not good for you. The food's not good for you. It passes all of the organic ticks. It's like, um, as, as an example, um, you know, um, free-range eggs. 
People think, oh, I'm going to buy the free-range eggs. That's amazing. Free-range just means that the chickens are allowed to actually uh, have a space that's as small as 10 metres by 10 metres, um, and they never use that space because it's obviously a pretty crappy space and, and they're bred to such an extent that they can hardly walk anyway. Whereas pasture-fed eggs, you know, you have to be, you know, on, on numerous acres. I think it's something like maximum of 500 chickens per acre. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's changing of the game. And that's, you know, the, that's the, the regenerative agriculture side. It's not just about being organic. It's around saying, okay, just because you can grow it organic in a greenhouse doesn't mean it's good that you're growing it in real, real soil with real sunlight. So, the, so, that, so you're getting that sort of movement coming from consumers that they want that type of product. But equally, there's some really great um, you know, leaders in this field that have proven that you can actually make a lot more money through regenerative agriculture because you don't have all of the fertilizer inputs, the spray inputs, um, you don't have to water them as much, weed them as much. So, um, and, 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 and you'll get a better price for your product because it's you know, legitimately not just farmed in a greenhouse. So I think there's some really exciting things. Um, and, and, and the other great thing about regenerative agriculture is that, um, that these things are growing um, together rather than mono agriculture where you sort of have one crop and you just grow the one crop. These crops are growing together, so that's, uh, that's equally a good way to diversify um, your, uh, your income and potentially even deal directly with the public because, as I mentioned before, the food system has so many middlemen in it, it's, um, it's just incredible. Um, I, I might even give you a good example of one of our investee companies, if, if, you, if you don't mind, in the seafood industry. Yeah, please. As a Scandinavian, you might appreciate this one. So, um, so Mineta's seafood now is, you know, just this incredible seafood technology business that we invested in quite a few years ago. But Peter Mineta's, who, who, who was a third-generation um, seafood family here in Sydney, um, his dad was one of the first people to set up the Sydney fish markets, um, and they own, you know, the Doors restaurants and this sort of stuff. But, but Peter, Peter talked about that in Australia, a, 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 a farmed Tasmanian salmon takes. 14 days from when it was caught in the farm to when it hits the, 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 uh, the, the table in the restaurant. 14 days. Norwegian salmon in Australia takes 48 hours. So the Scandinavians have got something about that uh, supply chain right. So what his mission was is how do we cut out all of the middlemen so that not only consumers are going to get um, you know, fresh fish that, that's 24 hours old, not, not, uh, not 14 days old, but it's going to be better for the farmers because at the moment the, uh, the, 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 the person who's catching the fish, the fisherman, um, I was trying to find a different term than fisherman, fisher person, um, but they're not getting you know, paid the appropriate amount per fish. So what do they have to do? They sort of have to overfish. So it's not good for the environment either. Whereas if you can actually um, cut out all the middlemen, the farmer gets, uh, the fisherman gets a lot more um, income, so they don't have to overfish, and the consumer gets a much better product. And we're not, um, we haven't got this supply chain. So if you catch a fish in Rockhampton, it still goes to the fish, Sydney fish markets, and then it goes back to Woolworths at Rockhampton to be sold. That just doesn't make any sense. So how do we change the way that these type of things, um, these type of things work? And technology is is one of the real solutions to do that. Yeah, and I'm assuming lots of wastage in that whole whole supply chain as as well, right? Yeah. So with with investable and with with the greenhouse, you know, your your investments are not just about writing a check. Uh, it sounds like you have a real passion for for mentoring entrepreneurs. What what do you think? Uh, you know, as 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 angel investors, and correct me here if I'm wrong, but you take a very active approach in in the sort of mentoring and in the physical creation of not just a co working space, but really sort of creating an accelerator here for for climate tech. Do you, how how do you work with um, with these entrepreneurs who who find themselves having a new home in in the greenhouse in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there will be some accelerators in the capacity building component. I mean, we're, we're mainly about scale-ups who, who are, you know, to be frank, aren't going aren't to be working in an accelerator. But those pre-scale-ups, yeah, we, we definitely in each of those six sectors will either be backing existing accelerators that work in those areas or we'll be creating our own um, as a capacity building. But really the core program for the greenhouse is a two-year immersion um, of a company that's probably already been funded. Um, we might give them additional funding in, in order to extend the runway but it's an intensive program that it's not one size fits all. We need to find out, you know, it could be we're going to be working quite a lot in um, talent. So we'll be looking for how do, how do we identify some of the best talent out there? Because when a startup wants 
a, um, a new person, they, they don't want to wait six months. They want them today because they're growing so fast. And sometimes that makes them make some pretty poor decisions, to be frank, of people that are just in front of them. Whereas we want to be able to create a much better way of a more efficient way of being able to achieve that. Some of them will need sales and networks. So as, if, if, for instance, they've got big visions to expand um, into the US or Europe, how do we make sure they've got a, you know, not a government landing pad, but another way of doing a landing pad that, um, that they, they, they meet the right sort of people or have the right sort of people working for them to do that. Um, and then, of course, there's the technology side of things. You know, how do we make sure that they've got access to, they might not have the world's greatest UX designer or CTO on staff, but if we can give them access to, to those type of individuals, um, they're more likely to build a really amazing product. So, I mean, within within that family, what do you think, what are, what are some of the, not just within the greenhouse and investables community, but you know, even globally, what do you think, what, what are the types of climate technologies that you get most excited by at the moment? What has the most promise for the future? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of talk um, about hydrogen as an example, but, you know, the, I think the court's still out on some of these technologies. So I think for me, it's, it's about backing technologies that are today can really make an impact between now and 2030 um, and equally backing some technologies that might you know have, a, have a, a bigger impact on the longer term so one of the things that will have a big impact on the longer term is carbon capture um, I think that's the only way that we're going to be able to keep um, you know global warming under a, you know what's what's an appropriate sort of level um, because the you know the emitters you know there's a certain amount that we can slow some of them down that are responsible countries but you know we've still got developing countries out there that it's just impossible to completely slow that down so carbon capture is going to definitely have to be one of those um, on the um, on, on the the immediacy side of things you know I, I still come back to that food and agriculture how do we make that more efficient how do we have less waste how do, how do we make sure that we're, we're doing it with the right sort of practices? How do we make sure that we recognise that the slow food movement or the, or the short food movement is, is working? You know, it just doesn't make any sense that, um, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in Cowra in western New South Wales. We were the biggest producer of asparagus in Australia. Um, and then Peru started to flood the market with, um, with really cheap asparagus and then everyone went bust. So no one grew asparagus in Australia for, for quite a period of time. So, you know, I think we just need to have some technologies that, that recognise that there's a price on distance food travels um, and how we, uh, how we make it more efficient. Um, and, you know, so there's, that's, that's certainly one of those areas. Transport is, is another huge one for Australia, particularly with our vast uh, kilometres that, that transport travels. So the, the electrification um, of, of not only, you know, personal vehicles, but, you know, the whole commercial side of things is a really exciting, um, and, and, you know, some, some amazing mines in, in, you know, in the Pilbara region are already go, going fully automated um, for that reason, which is, which is really fantastic. Yeah. So within, within that context of, I guess, regenerative farming, regenerative capitalism, we, we see, you know, carbon capture certainly being, being one of those technologies that you've pointed to. From what I'm understanding, and, and you talked about the diversification of income on farms, that farmers who are switching towards regenerative farming now, in fact, if they're able to also sequester carbon, some of them are even getting a secondary income by selling some of the carbon credits to, to companies like Microsoft. Is that is that a story that you're tuned into or is that something you're seeing even in, in the agricultural space? I mean, carbon credits are around to stay, but carbon credits do not fix climate change by any means, right? Um, so that's a, a band-aid solution. It's a necessary thing for organisations because there's just not enough ways to change how they do things, you know, immediately. So, you know, for instance, Lindlease, you know, green cement is, is still a bit of a pipe dream. You know, there's some real um, ways that, that, that but it's, but it's the, the supply chain for cement is just so ingrained that that'll take decades to change the way that that, uh, that process happens in order to still efficiently build, uh, you know, buildings with, with new types of products. But, but you know, there's, there's interest and it's happening. So I don't think carbon credits per se is, is the answer. And even, you know, if, if any farmers are on, online, most will admit that to, to do regenerative agriculture at a commercial scale, is, it's still not there. Um, it's still, we're talking hobby farmers that are getting some really good initial results. And that's really what I wanted to do with our farmers saying, okay, it's not going to be easy. And that's why we're, we're, we're running commercial farming alongside regenerative farming, because regenerative will only win if you can actually compete to um, commercial farming. So I think um, that, that's the exciting field, and I think we will start to get there, but it's not there yet. 
Yeah, and I mean, I read this is not uh, this is not a, a criticism of regenerative farming, but you, you alluded to the organic uh, movement a little while back. I read a, a story in the New Yorker magazine just this week, which was talking about a, a Midwest farmer who started up a company called Organic Land Management and then started hiring or starting uh, leasing land um, that was already certified as organic. He had about five different farms across uh, the Missouri region. But then he also then started buying up large bulk quantities of GMO foods and then branding it because one of his companies was around marketing for the organic sector and then on selling it for about double the price uh, and making uh, you know $142 million over you know, a period of years, eventually he, he got caught. Um, are there, you know, are these types of stories the, the, the stuff that will, you know, kind of be the, you know, fuel on the fire of the incumbents and the laggards who will say, hey, there's no merit to organic or regenerative farming or biodynamic because look at how these crooks, you know, utilize the movement in a negative way. Yeah, sadly, sadly, it's, 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 it's inevitable. Any new industry um, or industry that's very fast growing will attract cowboys um, or cowgirls. Um, and I think, you know, a, a, a good example of that was the, um, you know, Australia, you know, the government changed out the legislation around um, how to do home insulation. You know, it seemed like the right sort of thing, but so many people died because it just attracted a whole heap of uh, people that weren't qualified, did it in a rush job, they didn't have the right sort of materials or qualifications, and it was a disaster. And the same sort of thing as you're alluding to can really, you know, you know, in these new industries, particularly where there's a huge amount of money coming in. I mean, that's what one of the things that we, we will have to watch in the climate tech space is where there's a huge amount of money, there's going to be a huge amount of interest and you get a lot of, and it's not necessarily uh, crooks, um, that are going to be attracted. Sometimes it's people that should never be in that space at all. You get a couple of, you know, um, you know, amazingly intelligent individuals from some of the, the big consulting companies. Um, I see that quite regularly. You go, wow, there's a lot of money in green cement. Let's put a deck together, and they're very good at putting deck together. Let's pitch our idea, and they're very good. They're trained in, in being very good at orators. But the, the, just because you can put a good deck together and, and, and make a good speech doesn't mean you're going to be a great entrepreneur, and particularly not a good entrepreneur if you haven't had you know, a decade worth of experience in that field. So we, we, we tend to double down on people that have got really strong industry experience, and that's why we have, you know, go to such lengths to actually help mentor and coach them around the entrepreneurial side because sometimes they, they don't always have that. And, you know, we often we'll encourage them to take on founders that, um, that fill some of those missing gaps. Yeah, because, you know, there, so much damage can be done when you say that, you know, when, when, the, when the cowboys come in, in a sense, and, and, and hijack a particular space, um, I mean, and I'm not equating here in any ways, but it seems like Wall Street is really waking up to the idea of ESG, environmental social governance, and that, you know, companies who do perform well in that space or in those spaces are now outperforming their peers. What would you say to not just Wall Street or, or, or the average investor who, who, who might you know, not look at their superannuation very often? Um, you know, what, what's... You know, is is it, you know, to be invested still in, you know, in potentially what's going to be future stranded assets and not taking a, taking an active role in your superannuation or your other investments? What, you know, is there an ethical duty here on, on, on people uh, to, to look after where their, where their money is and where it's being invested? Should they, just like Wall Street is now waking up with the likes of Larry Fink at BlackRock, you know, is there an ethical, but also, you know, a, a duty to your own family to think that hey this is the dumb money it's invested in you know in potentially stranded asset if you were both ethical but also smart with your money here are the types of technologies and the types of companies you should really be thinking about yeah no i think i think so and that's why you can't always just rely on your advisor to tell, tell you where you're going to invest your money you know i think people have got to do their own research um, but certainly responsible investing is, is, is important. There's a huge amount of tailwinds. So, you know, even, even if those companies aren't any better than the average company, the tailwinds behind this space is going to push them up anyway. So I think it's a very good way to invest. But you've just got to be very careful of, you know, just because it has an ESG sticker doesn't mean it's ESG because as we talked about with the Cowboys side of things, you know, there's plenty of um, people that are, that, are, that are, you know, ESG washing their, their investments. So, um, and equally, 
there'll be a, a lot of people as as money floods out of the ones that aren't ESG. Um, some people are going to make a lot of money in, the, in those because they're going to be undervalued, even though they've got good profit. You know, it's a little bit like the facsimile. It took 20 years to die. Um, every year you think, oh, the facsimile is going to die this year, and it didn't die. So there's still 20 years worth of profits that, that those companies really made. So I think there's, there's some people playing both sides of the equation. Um, but you know, as an investor yourself, you've just got to you know, back good managers. Um, that have got the right intent um, and you know scratch the surface when you rather than just looking at the labels. Mm. An investable is uh, is a member of the uh, Net Zero Asset Manager Initiative. Is that something you can tell me a little bit more about? Given that it's sort of in the same vein as as what we've just been talking about. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's not it's not me that's been driving that in the company, although I wholeheartedly support it. Um, I think it's just a group of fund managers that have agreed to, um, you know, go for that net zero, that that's what we're supporting. And any, you know, I think it's less about positive investment, um, but it's encouraged, but it's making sure that we're not investing in anything that is going to be detrimental. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly the way that we invest has, has been like that even before we signed up to... Uh, to that coalition, but um, but but you know, it makes sense to be part of it and and and, and a strength in numbers. You know, the more people that recognise that brand, um, the, the better it is for everyone. So, I mean, you've always surrounded yourself uh, with you know great 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 collection of of thinkers, the likes of you know Richard Branson and you know your co-founder Trevor Fulsom and and others you know from the thought leaders community. Uh, through the ages, and many people have, you know, benefited from from your mentorship. Um, who, who are the, you know, who are the giants on whose shoulders you're standing, and who who've inspired you in in your current endeavours? Well, I mean, you know, Richard certainly. Um, Steve Steve Jobs was certainly. There's lots lots to to like about Steve. I I, I, I remember after his book. Uh, came came out. I remember a couple of my ex staff. It was just like you know very different. They kept you know emailing me and calling me saying, "Oh, I can't have read um, you know still I can't remember what the biography was called." But they said, "I've oh, read his biography. You know, can't work out how amazingly similar you are to Steve Jobs." What they actually meant was none of his good things. Not because I have no no eye for design. Um, I'm not iconic. What what they actually meant is some some of Steve's you know worst qualities um, in in some ways of, of him having that reality distortion theory <laughs> that puts it out put, you know puts an impossible task out there and just assumes you're going to get there and and it doesn't make you know it doesn't matter who who gets run over in the process. So I, so I actually took that to heart a little bit. So I guess when I'm mentoring these days, you know, because you know sometimes when you're the entrepreneur, the head of an organisation, you don't you don't you're not as reflective as as much about what impact you have on, on, on people. So I think I've had a little bit more time to, and maturity and wisdom maybe that, that observing others. So so I, I like to think that I can share some of that because I've, I've been one of those entrepreneurs that, that, that puts people's noses out of joint. Um, and there is a different way of doing that. Mm. Now, I mean, speaking about entrepreneurial journeys, we interviewed uh, Dr. Amantha Imba, who you've probably come across um, in the entrepreneurial space over the years. And uh, she shared with me a, a new innovation that she'd taken to heart, which was the failure resume. Obviously, you know, you, you, you both are very, very successful individuals. I'm curious if there was a, if there was a failure resume for Creel Price, any, any, you know, startups or lean startups or, you know, failing fast stories that you'd be, you'd be happy to share that you've learned from and accelerated from. Sure. I mean, there's thousands, really. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's um, you know, the worst thing about being, you know, someone who comes is prolific at coming up with ideas, is, um, is, 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 you know, sometimes you've got to put those ideas into action, um, and action is, is the hardest thing. You know, when, when we invest, as an example, we're not investing in the idea; we're investing in the people's ability to, in, to execute this over ten years. So uh, that's why it's not always the best ideas that get action; it's, it's the best teams because we know that their ideas can pivot and change. Um, and you know, a good example of that would be um, my mission around um, you know kidpreneurism, if you if you will. So when I I did that study about the 15th century Italian Renaissance, one of the things that really helped inspire that was the Medici family 
you know, really supported uh, an artistic school for kids. And with the likes of you know Raphael and Michelangelo and Da Vinci, they believe even even had a stint there. So I thought we'll do the same thing with young entrepreneurs. So you know I, I started that initiative in in 2009 um, with Tanya, my wife. Um, you know she was probably in, in, to be fair probably a little bit more on the sidelines when we first started, but I tried my damnedest for five years to make it successful. And sure we. You know, we, we helped a lot of kids start a business, but it just was unsustainable. It wasn't until Tanya took over quite a few years later that over the last you know, six years, the, the, the success has been quite incredible. So I think, you know, I'll take that on as a, as a failure during my tenure. But, um, you know, I, I've really seen, you know, and, and Tanya, we were, we were trying to do it when we first started as an example with, um, with entrepreneurs. So it seemed obvious to me to, if you want to train little entrepreneurs, you should use bigger entrepreneurs. And so after school, every afternoon, we would have these entrepreneurs pour into schools and they would train people on entrepreneurship. But the missing gap was entrepreneurs are very bad teachers. Um, so rather than do that, Tanya pivoted the model to train the teachers in entrepreneurship and then just bring in some, you know, some entrepreneurs for some, for, some, uh, for some wisdom afterwards. And that model has worked a lot better. And even the, 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 the second iteration around that was even engaging large organisations who want to have their staff a little bit more engaged um, because these organisations have already got these distribution networks with schools, etc. And rather than go to the schools direct, how do you work with, uh, you know, I think she's working with, um, with UNICEF now, she's working with the Smith family and some just amazing organisations that are really committed to helping uh, more kids get exposed to, uh, to innovation. Yeah, because that's the fascinating thing, right? I mean, even when we've been doing, you know, future work studies and white papers, I often get asked, you know, isn't it just all about STEM and sciences, technology, engineering and maths and, and, and teaching kids how to code? And, you know, you touched upon this a moment ago, you know, computers and, and robots and AI will probably learn how to code or code for us. So what what do you see are there kind of core skills be, beyond entrepreneurship that you know, the, the, the young people of today uh, need to learn so that they're, you know, they're setting themselves up or not just for the jobs of the future, but they might in fact be the designers of, of those jobs of the future. Yeah, I mean, I think which, which talks to where you've been talking about for some time around creativity. I think that's, you know, that's going to be the, the skill of the future is creativity. Um, we need to make sure that our young people aren't necessarily taught creativity. They're given an opportunity to uh, come up with their own version of creativity. And I think that's that's where we get a little bit wrong is we think there's a formula for everything and there's not always. Um, I'm a huge fan of experiential learning in schools um, rather than, you know, have a very set cri- cur- curriculum and because and kids can game a curriculum. Kids can game exams. But really what, what learning is about, which what schools should be about, is less about curriculum. It should be environments where, where kids can actually, you know, earn a whole new skill set. And that's what I love about entrepreneurship, you know, because ultimately, you know, we, we, we would teach these, you know, hundreds of hundreds of kids and, and the kids with the very um, tiger mum sort of uh, parent parenting, um, their kids wouldn't do as nearly as well at the market store compared to some kid that really didn't get any help. But they just came up with their own ideas because they, they had that sort of initiative and get up and go and they had to they had to fail before they uh, they could they could succeed. So I think that's really what we've got to give kids an opportunity to do is to fail. We've got to give kids the opportunity to come up with their own version of creativity, and we've got to give kids the understanding that the you know their future is not always get the highest mark, go to university, get a job with a prestigious organisation, work for another sixty years. I mean that model is just completely it was it was gone pre-COVID. COVID is just blowing that apart. Um, except in a few professions that, we, that people in the future are going to have a portfolio career and we need to um, gear them up for that. I'm curious, we spoke with Raj Sisodia, who's the author of uh, Conscious Capitalism, together with John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, and uh, also books like Firms of Endearment, fascinating guy. And he talked about the feminization of values across corporations and across enterprise and that, you know, a lot of firms are now even started by women. And, and by the feminization of, of, of companies, he doesn't actually talk about necessarily just more women, but he says one of the challenges with, with capitalism up until this point has been that it's been hyper-masculine and hyper-testosterone-fueled. Are you, are you seeing, I guess, A, more female entrepreneurial activity, but are you also seeing a, a values shift across society and, and, and the business space at the moment? 
Yeah, well, one of, the, one of the things I will say, I mean, it even came out in your, your early questioning, you asked me about, four, you know, a couple of companies that I was the most excited about, and I, I think all four have at least one female founder. Um, and so Investable has a proud history investing into female-led um, led companies. I think um, the average is, is somewhere less than 3%, the industry average, and, and we're close to 30%. Um, and that's you know been a successful formula for us because you know ultimately it's not just about building a business; it's being understanding the um, the, the consumer. And you know of course females make up at least fifty percent of the, the consumers. So so I think you know we've got good DNA in that regard. I think the world ha- has changed. Um, there's you know it's just a, a you know a requirement these days to make sure that you you really understand. Um, that, that females, you know, we've got to give them a, 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 a leg up um, where possible. Um, but really, the most dynamic females don't need a leg up. They're, 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 they're knocking th- through the, the glass ceiling at a rate of knots anyway. Um, but what's, what, what I think, one of the things around, and, and, and again, there's much better people than me to talk about this, but I think the future of the world is going to be collaboration. It's not going to be, you know, I remember when I first started investing in the share market, I invested in a company called Pacific Dunlop, which was Australia's biggest conglomerate. They, they had businesses in so many different areas. Well, within years, Pacific Dunlop had to be broken up and, and you know, focus in, the, in these really specific companies. And I think that trend has just only continued to a stage now where, you know, large organisations are going to be a conglomeration of different smaller organisations or smaller divisions within that organisations and partnerships. Um, and I think that's a really exciting version of entrepreneurship that, and, 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 and the, the, the more feminine mindset, I think, is how do we do things together rather than how do we, we you know, be the heroes um, ourselves only. Mm. So I'm always like casting my mind towards the future and then tell me if this is is getting a little bit uh fatalistic or or even uh you know a little bit uh mortality focused here but you know creel price on on his deathbed at you know age 129 or whatever it happens to be because of regenerative farming and 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 lots of you know evolutions and and innovations in technology uh don't take that day uh as as written anywhere um as a mantra necessarily, but I'm just I'm just postulating what what's on your what's on your tombstone and and what's uh, what are you most proud of if you were to future gaze a little bit? Well, I mean, I think you'd, you'd be the same having a young family now as well. I mean, part of it is you just want to have your uh, your kids proud of what what you've done and who you are, rather than just not what you've done. It's you know who you are and and, and where you're present with them in, in in their development. So I think you know as a minimum, I'd want to make sure that that's. Uh, something that I've achieved. Um, you know, family is very important to me. Um, the, the other thing I think, you know, I don't, I don't need thousands of people at my funeral. Um, I think it's a self-satisfaction when I, when I close my eyes for the last time is that, you know, I, I contributed to something that was, there was, there was, a, it was a fun ride, um, but society is better off for it. Um, and that hopefully, you know, I've turned on uh, the the entrepreneurial uh, flame in, in some people that I'm not even aware of, and I don't I don't need to take credit for that. I just need to know that feel comfortable that it happened. And so on on that, I think it's you know it's a beautiful beautiful motto and and, and vision. Are, are there you know are there any any stories of particular people that you've you know helped sort of you know tell a you know believable story of the benefits of entrepreneurship too over the years that have sort of you know gotten out of their own way or who've gone beyond you know distrust or even you know lack of confidence in themselves and in being able to make that shift into into entrepreneurship that you're particularly proud of Oh, well, the, the, the first, it's, it's probably not a great example. The, the first part of your question, this probably solved for, but I remember the um, um, my, my friend had to go and get a. He was having a. He, he was getting married at like a month before me, and he was going to get married. And went to this um, this guy had started this really trendy sort of custom suit suit place, and and uh, my, my mate Stu was saying, oh, you know, how did you how did you start this place? It's a bit it's a bit out of the ordinary and that sort of stuff. He goes, oh, I went to this um, this seminar and I had uh, I heard this guy speak. Um, and I, I just thought, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. Um, and he started his business. And Stu said, oh, you know, who was it? And he said it was, you know, Creel Price. And so, of course, I was getting married a month later. So I, I went and got my suit there as well because so, I wanted to meet this, this guy. But it was, it was just amazing how just, you know, one hour speak can actually be the difference. And I think that's what people don't recognise is when they're, when, they're, when they're mentors is, you know, you, you might not realise 
what difference you can actually make in someone's life. And, and sometimes if you try too hard, um, you don't make that difference. But it's, it's those, those, um, those interactions that I think are most important. And, you know, if I, if I think about greenhouse, it's all about the collisions. We don't know exactly the formula of how we're going to do that. But as long as we make the collisions happen um, and we bring the right people to bear, the ones that, that need the knowledge and the ones that have the knowledge, um, there's, there's going to be some magic happen. And so I think, you know, I, you know none, I'm, I'm sure there's other stories, but none, none come to, uh, to mind. I mean, I, I don't want to talk out of school with some of our portfolio companies, but we've had some pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty interesting times. You, know, you might have been familiar with that TV show that I, uh, I did uh, about three, three years ago. Uh, called the employable. So essentially, we took uh, 12 people yeah. from different walks of life, and and, and uh, over the 12 weeks, I, I aimed to set them up in a business. But there was one chap there that was in a wheelchair, and he wouldn't mind me sharing the story. Lazarus, he was a you know a, a transgender that had that had had this motorbike bicycle accident and lost it lost his leg, and because he had so much experience of everyone trying to treat him as a as a victim, um, when he did our program. He really got up the nose of every single person, all of the other participants, all the mentors, and it was just holding him back. And I, I really had to sit him down, and it was real, a real turning point for him because he, someone finally told him what he needed to hear. Through the program, we actually helped him create this social enterprise, which um, helps other people in wheelchairs um, get all of the information they need at the time they get their amputa leg amputated. Um, and that, that program now is in, I think, uh, last count was over 30 hospitals in, um, in New South Wales. So, you know, some, it's, you don't necessarily have to uh, make a difference to the person that goes on and um, and, and makes the billion dollars. Mm. You know, there's a you know there's a saying that you know when the student is ready, the the teacher or the mentor um, appears. I'm I'm super grateful in my own entrepreneurial journey to have met the likes of you and other people from within the thought leaders community. I'm a member of the entrepreneurs organisation that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, and one of the favourite things about the entrepreneurs organization that i really love is the fact that people you know don't give advice but we do do experience shares so we don't you know we don't when we do our deep dives or our five percent reflections and shares you know the best parts of life and the worst parts of life no one comes in and go oh you should do this uh, but it's all based upon um, really vulnerable sharing and i think you know mentors whether they're sharing success stories or even their failures you know that's one of the most powerful things we can do so it's you know power power of story telling um we're into the uh the, the final quarter here creel i think it's been a, a riveting conversation uh so far and i guess you know it gives me sort of goosebumps to see that you know you are you know in a sense recreating a, a mini florence in uh in the heart of sydney at circular key with with the greenhouse and you know just like the medicis um did back in 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 renaissance florence you know as as um People of means, certainly they backed, you know, young artists and, and young thinkers. You guys are doing, you know, much the same and hopefully creating some real innovation intersections as my as my friend's friend, Franz Johansson, who I think coined the term the Medici effect once upon a time uh, would call it. So um, really great to have you on the show. And any, any final thoughts or reflections from your end or any passion topics that you'd like to share um, or how people can find out more about your work? Sure. Well, I um, mean, you, know, you can you can always find me on um, on LinkedIn or um, you know investable.com um, is our is our investment business. It's probably the, the easiest way. We haven't gone live with Greenhouse because you know it won't launch till end of next year. I think we, we got that slightly wrong um, in the in, in the call out up front. But um, you know, it takes takes a while to actually to, to, to put these things together. It's still coming out of the ground the uh, the building, but. Um, so that's going to be certainly exciting. The greenhouse. We'd love to hear anyone that's um, in, involved in investment that um, that wants to support um, the the new generation of climate tech companies, large organisations particularly that want to collaborate and you know work out ways that we might be able to help them create a sustainable future for for their products and and, and services. And, um, and and lastly, probably talent is you know who who's, who wants to to work for a, a bunch of amazing companies that are going to go on and, and, and achieve some amazing things. Um, because I, I, for us, it's less about you know a, a zero or a, or, or a one. You know, because at the moment you either work for the large organisation or you work for the tiny startup, and a lot of people can't make that uh, that transition. So what we're trying to do with the greenhouse is is to make sure that you know you might start with a greenhouse, but we might give you ten companies to work for, and it might take you twelve months. 
before you find the one that you really want to double down on. Because when people are, uh, are doing um, employment decisions, um, they might look at, you know, four four companies um, that they'll, you know, so say scale-up companies, they'll go and interview with four and then one might offer the job and they accept that job. Well, when we're looking at investment, um, we look at 100 companies for every one we invest in. And I think if you're an employee and you're doubling down on a startup or a scale-up, you're making an investment decision because your wage is going to come down, you're going to spend the next potentially five years of your life um, and your reputation is going to be at stake. On, on, you know, so you've got to do that extra level of, of due diligence, if you like, and that's what we're trying to create for the talent is we would have already done that. We would have already picked the ones that we believe are going to be the winners of the future and then you can experiment which one might really resonate uh, with yourself um, and you won't know that until you've worked for them for, for a period of time. Yeah, fantastic. So good good opportunity to do some speed dating in uh, in the second renaissance, the entrepreneurissance that's going to be happening at Investable and the Greenhouse. So great to have you on the show, Creole. Always fascinating to, to hear uh, your thoughts um, and uh, hear about your experiences. So thank you for spending time with us. No problem. Good to see you, Anders. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and I'd be super grateful if you leave a review. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.